You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, my friend. Back from Rome again, I understand. That's right. I went into a kind of a spiritual retreat for a couple of weeks, which just means getting work done in a different environment. Really. And communing with the Stoic sages. That's right. Communing with the Stoic sages. Well, my family, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> uh, your family are not the Stoic sages, I take it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Massimo, before we start, what, what's the update on your book? When are we going to see it on? When are we going to be able to go on Amazon and buy it? Well, you can buy it on Amazon now, uh, meaning that you can pre-order it. Uh, the book comes out on May 9th, and uh, uh, there's quite a bit of excitement about it. Uh, the, the good news is that so far, uh, my agent has actually been able to sell nine different editions. Uh, there are going to be translations in uh, uh, Spanish, Dutch, German. Holy cow. Italian, Russian, Japanese. So it's kind of interesting. How, th- how does that get arranged? How do you, how do you arrange to have... Oh, does the publisher have to agree to do these translations? Or is that a oh, third, that's, a third that's party a that does thing. it? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing about having an agent that actually knows how to work these things. Uh, now, the publisher normally, so the main publisher, which is Basic Books, uh, the publisher normally would want uh, world rights, uh, but, uh, but when they make an offer. But the thing is, often they don't do much about it. They don't follow up, and so you don't, you, you don't end up with, with uh, many translations. So what my agent was able to negotiate, actually, was for Basic Books to do the main edition in the United States, but then she went separately. She's still going separately to different uh, publishers around the world, basically, shopping uh, the book. And so far, she's been incredibly su- successful. This is going to be by far the most translated of my books. So That's amazing. Well, congratulations. And just for a reminder, what is the title of the book? How to Be a Stoic. How to Be a Stoic by Massimo Piliucci, and it's already, you can already pre-order it on Amazon, so people should go and look if they're interested, and uh, that's really quite a crew. I mean, to be able to sell it in different languages in different countries, I think, is a major, uh, a major uh, uh, victory. Um, yeah. Um, um, is, yeah, is there an, is there an international interest? I mean, you've discovered that in America, there, and in, I guess in England, there yes. is a kind of a modern practicing Stoic movement. But is this something that's global now? Or is this something that you're going to be introducing to some of these countries? Uh, that's a good question. And my, your, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I know that there is a good market for, uh, there has been for the last few years, a good market for philosophy books of a, of a number of, you know, different, of different kinds in the countries that I mentioned. Uh, for instance, you know, just, just think about the fact that um, uh, Sandel, the guy that wrote, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the really nice book on, on justice and things like that. Uh, that's that's been a best-selling uh, book in North Korea and Japan. He's, he, he does actually North that. Korea. Yeah, uh, sorry, South, South Korea. Korea. I was going to say <laughs> yeah, yeah. we have no idea what goes on in North Korea. <laughs> um, but so you know, he's been lecturing to to sold-out crowds and things like that. So there is a market. Wow. For uh, philosophy books that are aimed at uh, either ethics. Uh, or sort of practical uh, things, especially if they're written by professional philosophers who take the plunge. Uh, you know, Peter Singer, of course, who yeah, I know yes. you have a little bit of a problem with. And so no, on. but he's he's definitely he's, worldwide. In terms he's of been his, definitely worldwide. Yeah, so yeah. so I'm, I'm guessing that my, my book at the moment is sort of piggybacking uh, on that kind of thing, whether it will be able to introduce or expand the introduction of stoicism in places like Japan or, or Russia, that would be great, yeah. 
Well, congratulations. That's really wonderful, and I, I wish it the best of, uh, of sales. And I will be expecting a personally signed uh, copy. Of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, now, today we're going to discuss something that I think – oh, I should, let, we should do our introduction. So I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm professor <laughs> of philosophy at Missouri State University, and this is my esteemed colleague, Massimo Pugliucci, who is – the KD running professor of philosophy at City College. Yeah, who the hell are these people? Right, who are these people? Um, we're going to be talking today about moral psychology and specifically the evolutionary brand of moral psychology and its relationship to ethics and moral philosophy. Right. Um, um, there is a lot of this going on in our own discipline. But I've also noticed that there's a lot of this going on, this crossing over into the popular culture. You have a lot of people, um, I'm thinking for one of like Paul Bloom, who yeah. are, who are br and Jonathan Haidt, who are bringing um, elements of moral psychology, oftentimes tinted with an evolutionary kind of approach, um, to bear on questions, uh, on, more, on ethical and moral questions. And... and I'm very personally dubious about a lot of this, if not most of it. And given that you are our resident um, uh, uh, scientist slash philosopher, and you know a little bit something about evolution, I think. Yeah, a few things. Um, I thought you'd be a perfect person to talk to about this. Um, and so, first of all, maybe we'd start by me asking you... Um, what do those who are interested in the intersection of these areas, what do you see them as trying to do? So the people who are bringing evolutionary slash moral psychology to bear upon ethical and moral questions, what do you think that they are purporting to do uh, or endeavoring to do in making this connection between the science on the one hand and the sort of normative uh, ethics on the other? That varies. Before we get in there, I have to just say up front that uh, you said you had misgivings about these kind of approaches. Uh, I do too. I am kind of open to some suggestions, uh, but, uh, but I'm cautious about it. So hopefully we'll be, be able to develop this uh, throughout our conversation. So I don't, I'm not in, in the camp that sort of rejects uh, even the possibility a priori, uh, let's say, of science, evolutionary biology, psychology, neuroscience, whatever it is. Uh, to tell us something interesting about ethics. Also because, as you know, I take ethics to be much broader than uh, modern analytic uh, moral philosophy is about. I take, I take the virtual ethical approach. Right. And so to me, actually, there's really not much of a distinction uh, or, or a sharp distinction between facts and values. They blend. They're, not, they're, they're separate, but they blend and they inform each other in a much more dynamic way, I think, that, than many... Uh, analytical moral philosophers would, would be comfortable with. And I guess, I guess, just on all, if you're a virtue ethicist, you're not even going to really accept a hard line between moral psychology and Correct. ethics, right? I mean, certainly Aristotle wouldn't, right? Correct, exactly. So, 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 so we're talking about it as it's done in the current, you know, at largely analytic framework, where there are seen to be these lines between the two, and it's sort of like two disciplines being brought together almost, it seems right. to me. Yeah. Right, right. The other, the other caveat before we get to talk about, you know, Bloom and, and Haidt and people like that, um, is that, and we'll, let's try not to talk about Sam Harris for once. No. I just did, I guess. We but promise. <laughs> that's going to be the end of that. Um, so, 
you know, the other thing to remember is that in some, in some respect, this is nothing new. I mean, uh, Quine uh, advocated back in the 1950s and 60s, a, uh, essentially turning both epistemology and moral philosophy into branches of psychology. Uh, and of course, if you go even further back, David Hume essentially did the same thing. It, it wouldn't put it in that in that, in that um, way, but what he was doing, he was trying to reestablish uh, philosophy, including ethics, uh, on more sort of scientific and empirical grounds, uh, you know, following the, the example of what had happened to physics uh, uh, with Newton and, and Galileo. So, so this is really nothing new. I mean, philosophers themselves has actually been after some philosophers, I should say, themselves have been after that kind of, uh, of thing, at least for the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, I think it's worth keeping in mind because too often these kind of discussions are cast in, in, in oh, here's the science against the philosophy. Here's the science that wants to colonize the philosophy. Here's the philosopher who defends its turf and, and so on and so forth. Not, it's not really like that, or at least if you take the historical perspective, even within philosophy, yeah. it's clear that it's not like that. And then, as you say, if you go even further back to Aristotle and the virtual ethicists, they would have not actually recognized any sharp distinction between the two. So, so this is kind of an interesting, uh, uh, there's many, many reasons why this is an interesting uh, uh, conversation. But back to what is happening now. So there's a number of people, especially evolutionary psychologists and social psychologists. So we're talking about people like Paul Bloom uh, at Yale or uh, Jonathan Haidt um, at um, uh, NYU uh, or Joshua Green, who is a neuroscientist at Harvard. You know, th these kind of, th these are the authors that I'm, I, I tend to refer to about these things. And it isn't really clear to me what exactly they're doing. And in fact, I'll tell you an episode uh, in, in a minute. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'm not sure that it's even clear to them. I was going to ask, is it clear to right. them what they're doing? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it is. So I haven't talked to Bloom uh, directly, but I've talked to both Green and, and Haidt repeatedly, uh, both in person with, with uh, Haidt and also in correspondence with both him and, and, uh, and Green. And the reason we talked is because when they write what they write, and we'll go into some details, I guess, in a, in a, in a minute in, about what it is that they write. But when they write about the social psychology or the evolutionary psychology or the neuroscience of moral decision-making, uh, the obvious question is, well, are you making a, uh, sorry, are you making descriptive statements? That is, are you saying, look, this is the way people think about morality, right? So, so you go, if you're a social psychologist, like Hyde, you go out and you do surveys and you say, hey, look, uh, it, it turns out that, um, for instance, one of his most uh, famous findings is that uh, people who consider themselves conservatives uh, in the United States uh, tend to have to, to think of certain dimensions of, of, uh, of moral philosophy or of morality as relevant. And these dimensions are partially different from the ones that are of tend to be of concern to people that uh, uh, sort of consider themselves uh, progressives or liberals, right? So liberals and progressives tend to care about issues of rights and issues of harm, especially, uh, while people on the left, on the right uh, side of the spectrum, although they do acknowledge those as, as components of morality, they also add things like purity and respect for authority and things like that, right? Okay, well, that's interesting. As a, as a finding, I mean, let's set aside the possible... I think that's interesting, too. Just as even... Right. 
as a political matter, it's interesting to exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. it's interesting social so from a social uh, sociological perspective and from a, a political perspective. Now, I'm setting aside entirely uh, methodological issues at the moment. So, you know, whether in fact, you know, the data really do say that, you know, what do you mean by conservative and, and liberal? You know, those categories don't apply atemporally and aculturally and so on and so forth. And there's as a, a project, the usefulness of it is obvious, right? I mean, it's, it right. would be a good thing to know that. Exactly. It to would do the sociology of American politics, it'd be a good thing to know those things, perfect. right? Yeah, yeah. Now, then the question that I asked a couple of times to Hyde directly because uh, the answer is ambiguous in his writings, especially in his, in his more popular writings. Because, you know, people when published, they, they publish academic papers, they tend to be more careful about what they write. And if they're not, they're cut by a reviewer, and therefore they're forced by the editor to be more cautious. But when you write for a general public, you know, you kind of let it go and you, you expand, you speculate, which is fine. That, that's, that's actually part of the, the, the point of doing popular writings, right? More informal writings. But then... If you read some of the stuff that some of these people are publishing, it's like it sounds like they're moving toward the prescriptive. So, so for instance, uh, once height comes really close at several points, although it doesn't explicitly say so, but it comes really close to say, well, you know, liberals are deficient from a moral perspective because they have fewer dimensions of what mm. they recognize mm. as. As morally salient, and and at that point, I will, as a philosopher, I would want to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute! Now you're making a a value judgment, uh, and you know, sure, sure, that's one interpretation. It's possible that you know you go there and say, hey, these people recognize three categories; these other ones five. So clearly, the three are, are missing the the remaining two. But one could also say, yeah, but the another explanation is that the additional two categories are actually category mistakes; they're really not moral. Um, and, uh, and these people are just making a mistake about considering moral, right? So the, the classic example is uh, uh, obedience to authority, uh, right? Well, why is obedience to authority? Why should obedience to authority be a moral dimension at all? Uh, you know, uh, you may value or not value depending on the circumstances, but but it's but it's very debatable at the right. Point. The point is, you need an argument. You can't just uh, yes, uh, right. It's something you can read off of data, off of empirical data. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I does not make that argument, uh, but it does come close to to essentially implying or almost almost stating that uh, uh, that there there are prescriptive that this data is in fact uh, indicative of, of the way things should be and not just the way the things are. The same goes for for Joshua Green. So Joshua Green is kind of interesting. I mean, he's a really good uh, neuroscientist, and and he also he also actually has a background in philosophy. He has a thing. I think he was a philosophy major. Uh, so it, it, it's not like he, he's completely naive about uh, these kind of things. Uh, but his statements are also kind of weird. So, for instance, he's, he's done a lot of neuroscience on, on the trolley problems, on the infamous trolley problems, right? And, uh, and so he's found out, for instance, that uh, um, whether people respond one way or the other to the trolley problem, so whether, you know, I'm sure our listeners know what I'm talking about, so I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. Or try, but otherwise, Google I'll have a link to a, a description yeah, exactly. of the trolley problem. Yeah, otherwise, Google it or, or take a look yeah, yeah. at the link. But um, so, so he discovered, again, something that is, from a scientific perspective and a psychological perspective, interesting, which is that the people that switch uh, um, decision between the... Um, lever version of the trolley dilemma and the push the fat man version of the, of the trolley dilemma. Uh, so those people 
seem to be inconsistent from a consequentialist perspective because the consequences of the act are, are the same. In both cases, you kill one person and you, and you five, save five others. Um, so why do they do it? Well, it turns out that uh, what, what happens when, you, when people switch to the um, uh, fat man version of the dilemma, the areas of their brain, uh, their brain that are involved in emotional response get activated and they override basically the, the sort of the, the frontal lobes, the frontal areas of the brain that are involved in rational decision making. Now, that's interesting. Not even particularly surprising, however, because, you know, is it really surprising that um, if you get somebody close to the act of killing uh, uh, someone else, you get an emotional response uh, and not just... Right. Everybody knows it's easier, it's easier to kill somebody dropping a bomb on them from 30,000 feet right. than it is to stand five inches away from them and plunge a knife into them. I mean, that's, it, that, it, I don't know if that's something that I really needed a study to tell me, is it? No, <laughs> I don't think so either. I don't think so either. But it's nice to know sort of what areas of the brain are involved. Yeah, 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 yeah. The brain science of it is, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's fine. Uh, now, the question is, however, that at some point uh, in his, again, in his more popular writings, uh, Green seems to suggest that this kind of favors a, um, uh, either, either a, um, I think he's, he's favoring a, a consequentialist view of, of, uh, of looking at things um, precisely because the consequentialist is less affected by sort of the emotional uh, reaction. And so he makes the same decision, you know, sort of consistently in both, in both situations. But there, it seems now that we're going from a descriptive uh, situation, you know, what, what's happening in the, in the field to, well, that's actually morally more defensive. Right. It, 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 it presumes that a, a specific moral point of view, and that is that, that, that reason is a more legitimate basis upon which to make moral decisions and emotions, and also that consistency is morally virtuous, right? right. Which, right. again, you couldn't assume you need to make arguments for those things. Those things that's can't just be read off the... Correct. And so I actually asked, so, so at some point we, we can link also to a, a blog post that I did a, a, about a year ago on, on moral so, uh, psychology and, and moral neuroscience. And uh, both uh, Green and, um, and Haidt, but especially Green, got upset about that post because they thought I, I mischaracterized them. So we got into a really interesting exchange sort of via email. And I asked them, I said, well, are you... You really so you you claim that you really don't say anything at all that can be interpreted in a prescriptive manner, and he says no, I don't. And then I went back and I, and I pointed out to him certain passages where he says uh, that he, there are implications of his research for the soundness of you know consequentialist doctrines. Well, what are these implications? If you're not talking, so he's hinting at some kind of empirical support for a particular philosophy without actually saying it. And when, he, and when I called him on it, he said, no, that's not, not what I'm saying. Well, yeah, technically, that's not what he's saying. He never actually comes out and straight, said it straight. But, but it kind of, like Haidt, he sort of walks this funny walk, this, this really perilous walk between, between the two, the two, the two uh, positions. Now, interesting thing, and, and here's the backstory that people don't know about, is that then I asked uh, Haidt, uh, Green and there was somebody else I can involved in that in that discussion. I think it was one of Green's co-authors. Um, I said, "Okay, well, why don't we do this?" Uh, I know the editor of the blog for the uh, American Philosophical Association. Uh, why don't you guys write a sort of a position paper, a short thing, like a thousand words or two thousand words, you know, like, a, like an op-ed piece, where you actually, where actually you explicitly say, 
what you think is the philosophical value, if any, of the kind of work that you guys are doing. I said, you know, this would be a great reference uh, for future discussions because it clears the air. It's right, to clarify, because everybody keeps, this conversation keeps yeah. happening, right? So, so you're, you're accusing me, you know, they're accusing me of misunderstanding what they're saying or et cetera. I say, okay, great. Then, then why don't we just put this thing out so that it's clear and then nobody can say, hey, you know, these people are doing this or that because here it is. That's, they all, all three of them refused. All three of them refused. And of course, one or two came up with the usual excuse of, well, I got other things to do. I said, come on, this is, we're talking an op-ed piece. These are people who write books on their, you know, on their spare time. So don't give me that stuff. And also, but one of them, and I think it was, well, actually, I can't, I can't say because I don't remember. I would have to go back and check the correspondence. But one of them actually explicitly said, oh, I don't want this thing to be published on a philosophy blog because then the philosophers are going to pick it apart. I said, well, that's a very strange objection. Wouldn't you of want it to be picked apart? I'm going to pick it apart. Supposed to pick it apart, right? That's supposed to. It's the whole point. Uh, besides, I said, you know, I'm sure we can contact the other APA, the American Psychological Association, and have a sort of a parallel post so the psychologists can, can pick it apart. Or if you want me, I can put uh, forth something analogous. Uh, on the uh, uh, psychological blog, and and uh, and and then they, we can use them as a sort of companion papers, companion positions papers. It, nothing came out of it, which really didn't leave me with a good feeling overall about what's going on there. I I still think these are people who are doing interesting research, but it was kind of strange to see them sort of you know in in, in a sense half throw the stone and then immediately hide their hand yeah. behind it. And, and, and even when you add, when you offered them straight away the you know the obvious possibility of saying, well, okay, let me show me your hands and, and so that we'll see what they look like, then eh, not not really. <laughs> so so this is an example of where where people are doing empirical research showing either at the social level of description or the neurological level of description um, let's say different different uh, facts that correlate with certain types of responses that people make to questions or whatever, and 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 then perhaps if you're not misreading them, making illegitimate leaps to sort of normative claims about about you know which ways are better and which ways are worse. Right. But I guess I'm also wondering. I, I, I mean, I'm wondering when I first approached you on this. I'm just more wondering in general about what exactly it means to give a scientific account of something like morality. I mean, what I was thinking of was these sort of baby studies, right? Mm -hmm. Or these yeah. animal studies that purport to show that babies and primates, uh, pre-socialized babies and primates, have kind of rudimentary moral, moral reactions. Right. And that this is supposed to somehow show something about the ultimately physiological and evolutionary basis uh, yeah. of moral life, right. and it's this that I find really very puzzling. I, 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 my my dubiousness is, is, is lies in a suspicion that it represents a basic category error, um, for the following reason, and that is that you know, and I think I put it this way to you: How could there be a science of something when no one can, no one even agrees on what the thing is, right? Yeah. So let's put it this way. If Kant is right, no baby can have a moral reaction, okay? Right. And certainly no chimpanzee can have a moral reaction. Right. Um, if Nietzsche is right, 
This whole notion that somehow morality is this pro-social behavior that's the result of these evolutionary processes also can't be right because Nietzsche doesn't think morality is pro-social, right? right? And so I guess what I'm wondering is, is there a fundamental mistake at the bottom of all of this? And that is a basic misunderstanding or a basic... They're presuming that we already have settled on a moral philosophy. They're presuming that we already know or that there even is such thing as morality. I mean, there are moral skeptics, very serious ones, right? Yeah. Um, who, who you can't ignore, right? There are egoists. There are, there are, there are nihilists there, that you can't ignore. And it just seems to me like the whole project of doing the science of morality presupposes, A, that there is such a thing, and B, that we have a settled view on what that is. And it seems yeah. to me that that's not the case. And given some of the things that you've written, your most recent book that we talked at length about, it may never be the case that there is an agreement as to what morality consists of. So how can there be a science of it? Yeah, so th th that's a very good question. Um, and, and I think we need to take it seriously. I I'm not quite as skeptical. I know, because you've said things right. like, Morality is sort of pro-social behavior. Right. And sort of, so right. that's why I'm asking you, because I didn't think you were right. as skeptical as I was. And I right. thought maybe you could find a way to, to explain it that gets around or, or voids or... Let, let, let's speak about this for a second. So, so let me start with an analogy. Um, what I think these studies are doing, uh, let's say both the developmental studies, the, the, the studies... Uh, as you mentioned about, you know, infant babies, you know, reacting one way or the other to certain sort of morally salient situations. Let's let's uh, take it away. It's a, situations, for instance, in, in which something unfair happens or, or something like that, right? Uh, as well as primatological studies. So Franz de Waal's, uh, uh, you know, very well-known studies. on with the, the grapes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. my God. Every time I watch that, I almost piss myself. It's so funny. It is. It's so mad, right? It watches the other. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're very, they're very funny. Now, uh, incidentally, I, yeah. I I do recommend uh, this book that came out by um, Franz Deval uh, some time ago. It's called Primates and Philosophers, uh, and actually, it's not by him. It's it, it it's one of those things where it opens up with an, a long essay by Franz Deval, where he actually tries to explain exactly what we're talking about here, what his view is as a primatologist in terms of sort of of the salience of his studies to. Uh, moral philosophy, and then there's a number of philosophers who comment on it uh, later on, uh, including, if I remember correctly, Peter Singer. Um, so it's an interesting book. I'll link to that. You'll have to send yeah. me that. I'll link to it. Yeah. yeah so it does give you a, a sense of how a serious scientist, because Deval is, is a good primatologist, he's, he knows what he's doing in terms of science. The, the philosophy is different, but then again, as I said in the in the book, you have a good number of, of serious philosophers reacting to it. But broadly, what I think these studies are doing that I think is relevant is to take the mystery or the mysticism even out of the general phenomenon of morality. By general phenomenon of morality, I mean the fact that uh, most of us, perhaps with the exception of psychopaths, do have these really strong feelings that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, or certain things are fair and certain things are unfair, and so on and so forth. That doesn't necessarily, by the way, going back to your Nietzsche example, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that uh, morality evolved as uh, in order to foster pro-social behavior. If by pro-social behavior one means, you know, like some kind of egalitarian society, uh, pro-social behavior could, could simply mean 
make an episode that a group works functionally. And if that's uh, mm. uh, if the way to do that is to have a tyrant at the top, mm. you know, the alpha male, uh, and everybody following his orders. Well, yeah, natural selection wouldn't give a damn about uh, which particular version, you know, which particular uh, uh, sort of scenario turns out to be um, most advantageous uh, for the organisms in question. So I don't think there is even necessarily a contradiction of, of Nietzsche. Um, but before we get to Nietzsche and Kant and so on and so forth, uh, so the basic idea is, I think the way I make sense of it is by analogy with similar studies uh, that are pertinent to different kinds of human activities, such as, for instance, mathematical abilities. Or, or musical abilities, or, or even the ability to to think logically and 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 do science for that matter. So, what do we we, we have? We have studies that uh, developmental studies of mathematical abilities or musical abilities in in very small children, okay, um, and in infants, and and we definitely have studies of sort of mathematical abilities in animals. What do they tell you? Well, they're certainly not going to tell you whether Fermat's last theorem is wrong or not. Uh, and they're not going to give you a proof for Fermat's last year. What they do tell you is that the incredibly complex, uh, varied, uh, uh, you know, culturally evolved and, and, and uh, uh, multifarious uh, uh, thing that we call mathematics or mathematical thinking didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of the fact that our ancestors and probably other animals at some point had to start counting. Okay. It was advantageous. It de they developed the, the ability to count. They developed the ability to figure out that there is you no know, sm smaller number of things here and higher, not larger number of things over there. That presumably had some kind of, of uh, sort of uh, survival advantage, uh, and and that led to the minimum ability to sort of eventually to abstract to the concept of numbers. Once that happened, and then you get in the case of humans, you get language thrown into the mix. Now you start talking about serious mathematical the development of serious mathematical abilities, but now it's mostly a matter of cultural evolution. The, 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 the bio, biology tells you very little at, the, at that point. Um, so what does the biology then tell you? Well, it tells you where it came from, where this thing came from. It doesn't tell you close to nothing, really, about modern mathematics, or mathematics has been done actually for the last you know, thousands of years, few thousands of years. Uh, so that's one. That's what the evolution side of the story does. What the uh, neuroscience side of the story does, also, again, it doesn't tell you whether Fermat's theorem is right or wrong or how to prove it, but it does tell you how the brain is capable of engaging in mathematical thinking, you know, which areas of the brain are involved and at what speed and what interactions, etc., etc., which is interesting, not to the mathematician, it's interesting to the neuroscientist or to, to the psychologist. And speaking of psychology, you can do studies comparing mathematical abilities of different people. For instance, it turns out that a lot of people have sort of a, a, a almost innate, uh, uh, innately fall for basic, uh, you know, probabilistic fallacies like the gambler's fallacy. Okay, lots of people are bad at doing uh, probabilistic uh, reasoning. Now that's interesting. Uh, again, it doesn't tell you that the gambler's fallacy, since everybody, almost everybody falls for the gambler's fallacy, it doesn't tell you that, well, you know, then too bad for probability theory, uh, we should give up the, the, the whole enterprise. It just tells you that most people don't know how to reason probabilistically, it doesn't come naturally to them, which is, in fact, I think, an argument for teaching statistics and probability theory. Yeah. So, all of these analogies, if you transpose that to, mora to morality, to ethics, then what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that 
the evolutionary studies, as tentative as they are, because when we're talking evolution, the whole idea of you know adaptive scenarios back in the Pleistocene is entirely speculative. So we don't really know what the hell happened there. But they are speculative, and those speculative scenarios they'll give you an idea of why is it that people have these these behaviors, uh, these really strong feelings, and, and and act on those on those strong feelings of you know about fair or unfair or things that they perceive it to be fair or unfair right or wrong, and so on and so forth. Where does that come from? Well, it probably comes from the fact that we, once that we became uh, social primates and we started uh, interacting in complex ways within our ancestral groups, we had to figure out ways to, to manage the interactions within the group in, in, in a reasonable way, you know, in a constructive way. So that's what it, may, it tells you where it came from. It tells you nothing about whether Kant is wrong or right, or whether Nietzsche is wrong or right, it just nothing. It tells you nothing about moral philosophy for the last two thousand years. It just tells you where the whole this whole basic idea of sort of uh, of right and wrong and, and fair and unfair come from. What do the neuroscience uh, studies tell you? Well, they tell you how is it that human beings engage in uh, moral thinking, and that's interesting because if it turns out as it as it seems to be the case that a lot of people think that they're engaging in moral thinking, but in fact, they're actually rationalizing pre-existing sort of uh, gut feelings or something like that, Um, then that tells you something interesting for uh, for the practical philosopher, not for the theoretical philosopher. Theoretical philosopher, theoretical moral moral, moral philosopher shouldn't really care that much about that. But if you want to do practical ethics, if you actually want to teach people how to think better about ethics, then you really ought to know, just like the statistician ought to know that most people engage in the, in the gambler's fallacy, and, and that may give them some ideas about how to go about teaching it, uh, teaching how to avoid it. So, so does the practical philosopher may benefit from, from knowing something about the neuroscience and the, and the, and the, and the biology, uh, uh, so the, the psychology of it. So that's the way I think of it. That is, a lot of this stuff is really peripheral to, actual, to what analytical, especially analytical moral philosophers do. It's entirely peripheral. Uh, but it does take the sting out of uh, this idea that some people say, well, where does morality come from? Or it must be coming from God, or it's entirely made up by humans out of, out of nowhere, so out of thin, out thin, thin air. It's not made out of thin air. It's, it does have, just like mathematical abilities and logical abilities, it does have a, a very deep origin somewhere in our deep past, but the origin don't tell you anything about the viability of moral theories as we understand them today. Well, but I mean, so let me, this is, this is exactly where I want to sort of ask you, push things a little bit. So, look, of the possible, look, I, I, I understand the sort of the, on the desire to avoid um, the sorts of appeals that, that, that don't get us anywhere. So, well, they all come from God or they're all just made up and stuff like this. But of course, those are only two of the worst non-naturalistic accounts that you could give. But I mean, there are others that, for example, the one that Kant gives, um, and that is that morality is, 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 is one of the conditions of practical reason. And yeah. I, I'm, it doesn't strike me that that is something that either requires or is even amenable to any sort of reductive account at all. In other words, I guess what I'm asking is, or suggesting is that 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 moral forms of life are not reducible past the past the social the social level of description, and that is that once you get below that, you're not talking about moral phenomenon anymore. I mean, I mean, uh, doesn't it? When you do these studies, like for example, with an infant, 
and you, and you purport to show, what you're trying to purport to show is that there's a rudimentary, natural, biological, moral sense. Right. At a minimum, you have to be able to characterize the infant's reactions as moral reactions. But if Kant is correct, an infant cannot have a moral reaction because the infant is not capable of representing the categorical imperative, right? And right. so, in other words, it's not so much that I'm wondering whether the, these, sci this, these, these scientific endeavors can justify a moral philosophy. It seems to me they have to presuppose a moral philosophy because yeah. there are moral philosophies that if you hold them would rule out the possibility of an infant or an ape having a moral reaction. Right. So, yeah, that, that's a good point. So there are two, at least two ways of, uh, of going about this that I can think of. One is the obvious one. Too bad for Kant. You know, it's like, uh, okay, but that okay. would be then to say that, that our biology does rule out certain moral philosophies, right? I'm not actually, actually going to defend that, but, but one could say, look, Kant was writing before Darwin. He had no idea about uh, evolutionary biology. He had no idea about, uh, you know, developmental psychology yeah. and things like that. So it's like, okay, he missed the, some chunk of the, what was going yeah. on. And yeah. that no, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think that right. that's a reaction that would work. I mean, you'd have to say yeah. something like that, right? But are there right. alternatives? That there allow us to sort of keep both, so to speak. Right, right. I think there is an alternative, and that's the one to which I, I tend to lean, which is I don't think of developmental studies or evolutionary studies as being about morality as we understand it today. Mm. Okay. I, think, I think of them as being what, for lack of a better term, one could call proto-morality. Um, and in fact, it's interesting that you... That you uh, so it's, by proto-morality, I mean sort of the building blocks, the biological and developmental building blocks and, and psychological building blocks that make actually moral thinking possible, but they absolutely don't determine it, okay? They Just wildly in, underdetermine what moral systems you can build on top of them. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. right, right, right. That's in the same way in which our ability to think logically underdetermines which kind of logic you're going to embrace in, for whatever, to solve whatever problem. You're going to go, you know, uh, uh, bimodal logic, multimodal, phasic, whatever. We all use the same brain for doing those kind of things. So the, the brain structure make it possible for us to engage in that kind of reasoning, but certainly don't, it doesn't determine uh, which particular type of reasoning is in somehow better or more useful than, than another. So what I would say is, in fact, you, it's interesting, I think, that you brought up Kant, because Kant, as you know, is uh, often considered the, the, the person that sort of finally resolved or reconciled in some way the, the long-standing tra uh, uh, traditions in philosophy of rationalism and empiricism, right? And the way he did that was to essentially introduce this idea that there is an architecture of the mind that we come equipped with, right? So we are naturally capable of, let's say, making causal inferences or, or navigate or, uh, or having a sense of space and time and things like that. And then there's these categories, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, I think, right, I think he was right there. That is, uh, that is in fact the way to, to sort of put together the rationalist and the empiricist uh, uh, traditions and say, look, each one of you got something right here. Uh, it, it's just that human uh, thinking is not reducible and human science is not reducible to either one of those traditions taken separately. Because there has to be some preconditions, sort of stru some structure of the mind without which we're not capable of, of thinking. We're not capable of, of, of doing anything. So the, the mind is certainly not a tabula rasa, but it's also not something that can so deduce truth just by sitting there and thinking about it, right? Well, I completely buy 
the general uh, uh, sort of gist of Kant's uh, uh, account there. I mean, we, we then we can have discussions about which specific categories we want to recognize and what they right, mean. Right, but the general logic of it, I think, has largely been accepted and it's been sort of confirmed in things like perceptual psychology and stuff like that. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Now, what is missing, however, from Kant's perspective, and I talk about I, I talk about this as a, as a biologist, is, yeah, okay, but where do they come from? Where, where do these structures of the mind come from? And I, I think there the answer has to be evolution, evolutionary in some sense, uh, to some extent, and developmental. That is, yes, it's true, uh, an infant, a human infant certainly cannot engage in the cannot think in the categorical imperative, so he's not thinking morally from a Kantian perspective. But that moral in, that infant has to develop, and, it, and development is a gradual process, has to develop into an adult that has the tools, the mental structure that allows somebody like Kant to argue uh, in terms of categorical imperative. So I think that Kant is right, but he was missing. The, so he basically said, look, this is the starting point. The structures of the mind are the starting point. He did not give us an account of where those structures come from or how they actually develop uh, during a human life. Those accounts are the ones that are beginning to be given by evolutionary biology and uh, developmental psychology. Developmental psychology is far ahead than evolutionary biology because it's much less speculative, right? So you can actually do experiments uh, with live human beings, while evolutionary psychology, as you know, is, is, is much more speculative. But nonetheless, I do think that those two disciplines do complete, and, and together with neuroscience, actually, because neuroscience is directly about the structure of the brain, uh, the architecture of the brain, they do complete the Kantian account, but they're not necessary to then develop or discuss, and I think this is a crucial point, uh, different theories of morality or, or, or even to address individual moral questions. Well, they're not necessary and they're certainly not sufficient because of the underdetermination, right? Correct. Right. Exactly. Right. They're, not know, they're, they're, they're definitely not yeah. sufficient. You can just say, uh, you, so you could basically, the reaction of a philosopher, I think, uh, uh, to those studies could simply be, look, or analytic philosophy especially, look, sure, uh, I know that there has to that these things come from somewhere. These abilities come from somewhere, and I can treat that as a black box. Yes, they have an origin, evolutionarily speaking. Yes, they develop throughout uh, the, the human development from childhood uh, to adulthood. Yes, there is something inside the brain that it allows us to do that. All of that is great. It provides the the machinery, but I'm not interested in the machinery. I'm interested in what to do with that machinery. Right. So uh, analogously to like, you know, you don't need to be an engineer in order to drive a car. Uh, you need to know very little, in fact, about the interior of a car, if anything, in order to successfully drive a car. What you need to do is to pay attention to the socially imposed rules of, you know, red lights and, and pedestrians and things like that. That, yes. Uh, and there are better and, and worse drivers, but those better and worse drivers are not actually based on an understanding of the engineering of, of car making. It's like, you know, most of us just don't know. Oops. Your camera just cut out. Yes. Oh, okay, there you go. Um, that's fine. Right. So, 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 so that's, I think, the... the okay, the if I could ask you to be, to, be more, to be specific, because this strikes me as the crucial point. It's the point I'm, I'm, mis I'm constantly feeling like I'm not getting. And the, you just described it really nicely, but I'd like you to, then, to now say it in terms of the specific case. So you said that the reactions that these scientists are studying in infants and primates 
should not be thought of as moral reactions, right? So, so you, you, you do a bunch of things in front of a baby, and right. it reacts favorably to one thing and unfavorably to another, right? right? How, do you, how, would you character, how would you characterize the nature of those reactions? They're not moral reactions, you want to say, right? Correct. So they're, they're just what I that I would I would consider at the best for for lack of a better word proto proto yeah. and and so the question then is because it seems to me like a lot of the tests and this may be a fault of the tests but not of the idea of testing right it seems yeah. to me a lot of the tests the stimuli that they're trying to present are things that assume that morality means a certain thing in other words yeah. um, unfairness. Well, only certain moral theories treat unfairness as, as a moral vice. Not all of them do. So why should you test a baby's reaction to unfairness? Yeah. Right? Now, there I think you have a very good point, which is uh, uh, the psychologists and neuroscientists and so on and so forth often, you know, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but often seem to act as if uh, it was obvious, blindingly obvious that this is a moral behavior or this is not a moral behavior, when in fact, as you say, uh, it depends on the moral framework that that, that you uh, come up with, um, and so there you're right. I think there is there is a significant amount of importing uh, specific moral theories, typically either some kind of version of, of deontology or some kind of utilitarianism. I mean, those are the two. Right. They're certainly not presupposing Nietzschean ethics. No, that's when right. they go and test infants' reactions, right? right? right. Um, um, and so that always strikes me as sort of smuggling something in. Right. Um, um, that's illegitimate, right? I mean, in the sense that, that, that it presupposes something that you can't presuppose, and that then taints the experiment, it seems to me, does it not? Fatally taints it. To some extent, yes, but I don't think it makes it entirely invalid, and, and here's, here's why. So, um, let's say we're talking, again, instead of, of ethics, we're talking about logic, and you say, well, I'm interested in, in what kind, you know, how... Infants develop and then children develop an ability to reason logically. Uh, and I'm interested in, uh, in seeing which areas of the brain are involved in logical thinking and so on and so forth. Well, there you run into the same problem, right? So what do you mean by logic? Uh, are you subscribing to a particular type of you know, logical system and so on and so forth? Um, and then the answer is, well, look, uh, there are certain kinds of basic things that I think most people would agree that are part of the, you know, the, within the purview of logic, and even if they don't agree, even if they think it's bad logic, they actually have to make an argument afterwards, uh, or a more sophisticated argument that st still takes them as a starting point. So, for instance, you know, we can all agree that bimodal logic is, in fact, a type of logic, no matter what the definition of logic uh, that you want to come in. But then again, there are people who subscribe to paraconsistent logic, and I will tell you that bimodal logic is flawed, and it ought to be rejected. But in order to do that, in order to do that rejection, they still need to start from uh, bimodal logic and then build into to more sophisticated logical systems that eventually allows them to reject basically the starting the starting point. So similarly, I think one can make that argument with Nietzsche. Yes, Nietzsche doesn't think that fairness, for instance, uh, have anything to do with lot with with morality, or that sympathy is a virtue, or that sympathy right, is a virtue. Right. But he has to make an argument for that, and that argument starts out from the uh, sort of share fairly widely shared presupposition that morality is in fact about fairness uh, and it is in fact about pro-social behavior and so on and so forth. And you can say, yeah, well, most people think that, but in fact they're wrong. It shouldn't be about this. 
it should be about something else or it should that, that position should be rejected. You don't get Nietzsche out of nowhere. You get Nietzsche out of a long tradition, of course, of doing moral philosophy. And that tradition, I think, would say that things like uh, fairness, justice, and however you want to think of them are more or less necessary components of what it is that we're talking about, just like yeah. uh, basic arithmetics is a component of mathematics and th things like that. And then you can say, yeah, but I'm going to go for, for, I reject basic arithmetics, I'm going to go for, um, you know, uh, sort of weird number systems or, or set theory or something like that, and I don't, I do without numbers entirely. Sure, you can do that, but you don't, you never start at that level. Yeah, now, so I mean, I, I don't want to make this all about Nietzsche, but I mean, he's only a good case because he inverts most of the typical moral presumptions that people have. But yeah. I mean, Nietzsche himself gives quite a sophisticated and substantial account of where this mistaken morality came from. He does a genealogy of morals, right? Right. And it, but it's historical. It's culturally yeah. and historically. And he, he explains where what he calls the slave morality comes from, right? Um, um, and... That again is not an explanation that's going to map onto any biological story that we're, or evolutionary story that we're going to tell, is it? Well, maybe. Uh, I mean, it has been some time since I read my Nietzsche, so you correct me about this. But, but perhaps one can make a similar argument to the one that I made earlier concerning Kant. That is, if you give a, a historical account, first of all, Nietzsche himself, as you just said, does agree that most people yes yes think yes by, by yes. morality right so so he's countercultural yes yeah yes. yeah so so one could say right there okay well then that's what the scientists are concerned with what most most people mm. um, think or mm. act and then and then we you know leave it to the philosophers to think about the 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 exceptions or the way in which these things can be overturned but uh, even giving an historical account well uh, again. Nietzsche, although he was later, and so he should have been aware, actually, of, or, or he was aware, in fact, of evolutionary ideas, but still, um, the historical account, there's no reason why the historical account has to stop at history. It can go into prehistory, right? So history itself starts from somewhere. Uh, and so you can still make the same kind of argument that, okay, but you could keep going with the genealogy. Because if you went far enough back, you would get to the primatology, right? Right, you would exactly. Get to, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's yeah. that we make a sharp distinction between, you know, primatology, uh, archaeology, and history. But there isn't any such distinction. It, it's just a question of, you know, we tend to think of history as mostly about written documentation, things that are that are or, or time periods where there is written documentation. Right. Archaeology uh, extends further back into, um, you know, obviously you can do archaeology also for recent things, but but archaeology itself extends yeah. to artifacts where there was no writing, and then you get into uh, paleobiology and, yeah, and properly uh, prehistorical to where you're now doing right yeah 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 but they're all a continuum I mean it's just just because certain different people study these different things and just because those periods are actually characterized by different kind of artifacts uh, you know they are a continuum and they go all the way back to our ancestors that said of course one does need to be reminded constantly that the further back you go in time the more speculative all this stuff becomes you know uh, historical accounts of the evolution of moral philosophy in the last 2,000 years are pretty damn reliable. Uh, but beyond that, you know, before that, they become increasingly speculative. And if we're talking about what was happening in the place to scene, it's like anybody's guess. I mean, there are there are educated guesses uh, because there are there is some data about what uh, you know early human societies might have looked like and and what other primates are doing by comparison. But they are very speculative, right? So, so you, you even you even want to say that. 
what we observe our current walking around primates doing is pretty tenuous evidence, even with respect to our origins. Give, even though we did originate as primates, you think right. that that's still pretty, pretty tenuous evidence. It's pretty tenuous for, for, for a number of reasons, but let's remember two things. First, a basic principle of, of evolutionary biology, which is, you know, no extant species, that is no species living today, is our is an ancestor of ours, right? They're, right. They're our cousins and brothers and things like that, but they're not ancestors. People forget that, I think, yeah. People tend to forget yeah. that. You know, so we don't come from bonobos or chimpanzees. Right. Both the bonobos and chimpanzees and us come from something Are else. Separate, they're on a separate branch. Right. They come from a common root. I think a lot of people think of primatized. Oh, you know, we have examples of our ancestors walking around. and we can No, we don't. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. We don't. Yeah. What we do have examples of is of animals that evolved from a common ancestors to ours, and therefore we and them inherited certain kind of behaviors and, and, and you know, uh, uh, brain structures and so on and so forth. Yes, that's true. But that's much more tenuous than say, hey, look at that. There is, an, there is one of our ancestors walking into the savannah or something like that, number one. The other thing that people tend to forget, which is related, is that, uh, I forgot the exact, the exact uh, latest um, estimate, but chimpanzees and bonobos are separated from us by at least four or five million years of evolution. That's a lot of time, especially if we're talking about something uh, so plastic as, as behavior, okay, uh, in cultural behavior particularly. So, so they cannot, those studies cannot tell us in, uh, a lot because we're talking about four or five million years of independent evolution where we went one way and they went another way. And then thirdly, I did say that there were two reasons, but there's a third one actually, now that I think of it, which is we only have two very close related species to us, okay? Uh, and those are the bonobos and the chimpanzees. The bonobos are the, the pygmy chimpanzees. Uh, everything else is further out on the evolutionary tree. So, so gorillas are even further out, and then uh, uh, orangutans are even further out, and then there's the monkeys, okay? So the only ones that are that are survive, surviving, because we do know of a, of a number of hominid species, but they all went extinct. That went extinct, yeah. yeah. So there's nothing we can do about that in terms of sort of competitive behavior. The only currently living species that are somewhat close to us are the bonobos and the chimpanzees. Now, if you look at the phylogenetic tree, that is at the family tree of, of, uh, of, of modern great apes, turns out that chimpanzees and bonobos are about equally distant phylogenetically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, from us as each as the other is. Okay, so we, we, we got four million years or whatever it is, separation from the chimpanzees and four million years separation from the bonobos. Okay? Now, the bonobos and the chimpanzees are very different in terms of social structure, of behavior, and in, including proto-social behavior. That's even I think that's known even in the popular culture. That yes. The bonobos are the peaceful, the sort of the peaceful hippie type apes, right. and the, the chimpanzees are actually kind of bloodthirsty and violent, right? Right. right? right. <laughs> exactly. So now, so that's a little simplistic, but pretty much there, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. That, that's it, right? So the bonobos tend to be very uh, uh, socially uh, mild from that perspective, you know, very cooperative, and they, they're all about you know using sex to sort of solve uh, uh, yeah. interpersonal conflicts, while chimpanzees yeah. will club the hell out of you. Uh, they're very aggressive. They're, they 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 actually wage war for all effective. Now there is another war, word that one shouldn't you apply. You have to be very careful in how you ascribe right. that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. But but they do have you know aggressive. They do show intergroup aggressive behavior, which I would call proto war. Yeah. Uh, right. So 
which means that then the question is, well, which one of the two is more informative about human nature, right? Because the way it winds up happening is that it always seems to me there's a cherry picking. Whichever one confirms the, the view I already have, right? Um, right. Um, um, you know, so if I want to show that people are, you know, sort of naturally evolutionary designed to kind of cooperate, I'm going to point at the Bonobos, right? Um, exactly. um, and I guess that's, that's also probably what I object to, to a lot of the use of this sort of evolutionary accounts in the popular culture and maybe in that, that vague line between, the, you know, uh, Bob Wright, the owner of the site, um, mm -hmm. is just absolutely enraptured with these evolutionary explanations that are supposed to, and he thinks, point us in this direction of universal peace and brotherhood, right? Which mm -hmm. it just seems to me is just completely unfounded. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, um, that's just way too much underdetermination between that sort of evolutionary correct. base and correct. any sort of... Yes, <laughs> that's absolutely correct. And I, I think that if we're going to talk about human nature... Uh, human beings are somewhere in between, really, the chimpanzees and the bonobos. That is, we're clearly socially and cooperative. There's no question about it. We, we wouldn't have been able to build the kind of stuff that we've built on this planet, for good and for bad, uh, if we were not obviously cooperative. We do clearly have, uh, you know, a altruistic uh, behavior within certain bounds and within certain, you know, limits and so on and so forth. But equally so, we're also aggressive, we're destructive, we're selfish and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we are both. We're definitely a combination, a, com a complex combination of both. And frankly, beyond a certain limit, it doesn't make much sense. It doesn't help to say, well, we're more like the bonobos or more like the chimpanzees. Who cares? We are what we are. And we, and we have plenty of evidence of what we are because we can tell from our own history uh, and, and, and our own studies in sort of modern uh, psychology and modern sociology what we are. We don't really need input from the place to scene to figure out that we are the, the, the way we, we and, 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 and the way we are and what we behave. So, so in that, that sense... You know, it's funny, this point about the bonobos and the chimps being equal distance from us and thus sort of providing a problem, you know, you know who do we take to be... The, who, who do we take to be the proto version of what it is we're talking about? And this lending itself to a very dangerous sort of smug, you know, in a sense, picking and choosing your database in terms of what you already sort of presuppose. But I mean, is it even sort of worse than that, though? Because it seems to me like there's sort of an embarrassment of riches. I mean, you can look across nature to mm -hmm. creatures that are much farther away from us. Mm. Who exhibit what you could argue is moral and pro-social, proto-social behavior? Right. I mean, certainly dolphins, uh, elephants. Um, right. um, I mean, for God's sake, insects, right? Um, so I guess what I'm right. wondering is, you know, I appreciate your point about, you know, biological science not just can give us these sort of can give us an account of the sort of proto uh, proto states, let's say that 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 upon which supervene. The sorts of things we're ta interested in talking about: moral life, social life, political life. Um, um, but I, but that they underdetermine them, right? But I'm wondering if that supervenience-based so wildly underdetermines it that it just winds up being sort of a kind of hand wave, right? I mean, yeah. if if we have examples of pro-social behavior extended across virtually every branch of the evolutionary tree to, to the insect kingdom, to where we bear almost no genetic effect. I mean, it, it's so far down. Right. What use is it really to well, make these sorts of appeals? Right. So the, the interesting thing that you mentioned, the insects, actually moralists of the past, at some point, I think even Seneca, 
do mention social insects as a good model, you know, to follow for you. <laughs> oh, God. Because, yeah, of course, Seneca had no idea what social insects, you know, I have very little idea what social insects actually do. Right. And, you know, and how the, their society we actually works. We have to works. spray pheromones all over each other all the time, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> they tend to be, by modern standards, they would be incredibly fascistic societies. So it's like, you know, but anyway, the, but point taken. So there's a lot of, uh, if you look at the animal world, world there's a lot of uh, variety on, on pretty much anything. Uh, you know, actually, my, my favorite example is gay behavior, right? Homosexual behavior. Uh, it's funny that that uh, a lot of people on sort of the, the very conservative right, they, they insist that this is an aberration, this is not natural. The hell it isn't, because actually, homosexual behavior... You see behavior, it everywhere, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's found in a lot of, of animal species. Um, but so what? I mean, just whether it's found or not found, it actually tells you nothing about the moral salience of homosexual behavior in human society. I mean, so if, he, if it's found, what does that mean? That, that then we have to agree that whatever is found in nature, it's acceptable in human society? Of course not. That would be an appeal to nature. It's a basic logical fallacy. Um, and if it's not found in nature, so what? Does that mean that we have, we're bound to, to do only things that are found in nature? Uh, then, you know, forget all, all about uh, the iPad that I'm using to talk to you. All the, and all the social progress we've made. Yes. Right, right. Social technological progress, you know, forget all about it. You know, medicine out of the window because it's not natural. So those, those kind of, that kind of uh, uh, argument is obviously ridiculous. Now, to be fair, however, to the people who want to do some kind of evolutionary sort of psychology of human behavior... Uh, they would they would definitely restrict themselves phylogenetically. So they would say, no, look, the only things here that are relevant are our most close close ancestors. You can't go, uh, you know, further to the social insects or the birds or something. And that precisely for the reason you just said that that is they're so far away uh, evolutionarily and genetically. But if there's nothing distinctive about our branch in terms of exhibiting proto-social behavior, then it seems to me that looking to that level, that biological level, is much less interesting, right? Because it's all over yeah. nature. It's not special to primates. No, so that's then right. what is the use of finding out that well, primates have proto-social behavior? Everything in fucking nature has proto-social behavior in it, yeah. right? Well, it's, so proto-social behavior is every, it, well, not everywhere. But but you know what I mean, though. It's yeah. so widely distributed. Exactly. It's widely distributed. Now, what's the use of knowing it, then? It's almost like it, it, it's... Well, the use of knowing, I suppose, uh, as I said, you, the use is actually fairly limited, but but it does give you uh, this this answer of where is it that then really social behavior and real, really seriously moral behavior come from. Um, probably tells you that the species that only species that have that that exhibit proto-social behavior are eventually capable of developing full-fledged social behavior. That is, if we were, uh, you know, uh, lone, non-social primates, we wouldn't be talking about... So it still will rule not. out an awful lot. In other words, even though it no. includes things as wildly disparate from us as insects, right. it does indeed rule out quite a lot, right, in terms yeah. of, 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 of... Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. again, I think the, your, your point earlier that, uh, that the biology, both the evolutionary biology and the developmental biology... Uh, and, and of course, developmental, developmental psychology uh, way underdetermined uh, moral, moral, our understanding of morality as a cultural phenomenon. That's absolutely true. Um, the only value that these things have, in my mind, is that they show you where potentially a moral behavior came from 
and they do show you some constraints on the way people normally tend to think about certain things that have moral salience. That's what they do. They don't tell you anything about which thing is right or wrong or which moral system, moral ethical framework is better, yeah. more defensible or other. That definitely is, those, those are definitely philosophical questions. Just like, I want to go back to my original analogy, just like uh, whether you should, you know, let's say work within Euclidean geometry right. or spherical geometry, it's got nothing, you know, it's got nothing to do with the fact that we have brains that are capable of allowing us to think about geometry. Or yes. bivalent or multivalent logic or whatever. Or exactly. Um, um, I mean, yes, we have to have brains that allow, they are complex enough and that have the structures that are capable of generating that kind of thinking. That's true. In fact, I would say that's kind of obviously true. If we didn't have those brains, then we wouldn't think about uh, mathematics or logic or, or, or ethics. But the fact that we do have those structures really does so grossly under underdetermine uh, the specific content of logical, ethical, mathematical, and even scientific thinking that scientists, mathematicians, logicians, and, and philosophers can do a lot of work without really giving a damn about what the evolutionary biology of those things actually was. Yeah, let me ask you just one other thing um, about the studies, the infant studies. Um, because you're, 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 pra you're a practicing scientist, I, I, I have an opportunity to ask somebody who actually probably will know how to answer this. Um, I also have a difficulty understanding, given that an infant is not capable of representing an experience or perception under a concept, right. when you say that, okay, I'm going to do an experiment where I want to see how infants react to unfair scenarios, right. an infant's not capable of representing a scenario as unfair. So right. how is it that the infant can I how can I then legitimately say that the infant is reacting to an unfair scenario? The infant is reacting to the scenario under a much lower level description, right? right? And how do I know that his reactions have nothing to do with the unfairness of it, but have to do with accidental features of the lower level descriptive properties of the scenario? Like, you know, maybe it turns out that infants always react a certain way when your arm is up as opposed to when it's down, right? right. Or in other words, it seems to me there's also just a fundamental problem in how the studies are done. They presuppose things that strikes me can't be the case. Or am I not understanding how this is? Yeah, I, so I think that's a legitimate concern. I do have a partial answer to that one, to that concern that I'm going to get into in, in a moment. But um, before I get there, we do need to remind people that uh, far too often you hear, you read, uh, you know, accounts in newspapers or magazines or popular books about these kind of experiments as if they were entirely uncontroversial, as if, okay, this is the data and this is what the data shows. The studies show, but da 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 right? <laughs> that is most definitely not the case, right? So these are really delicate experiments precisely because, as you, as, as you say, they're done on subjects who cannot articulate uh, what they're thinking, if they're thinking anything, they're reacting probably sort of instinctually. So there's a lot of interpretation goes on. There's a lot of that hinges on the specific setup. There's a wonderful book that came out a number of years ago uh, called Delusions of Gender, for instance, and it's about the neurobiology of gender, of gender differences. And, and it goes, it dissects very clearly and very painfully, I should say, um, all of these experiments that prepare to show or not to show that there are differences between genders back into the crib. And, and, and the, the author says, look, 
if you actually look at the methodology of these of these things, if you actually look at the sample size, the way the analysis are done, the, the kind of assumptions that are built into the studies, this is nothing like an open and shut book. And it's often presented as if it were so clear that you couldn't possibly argue, you know, it's science. As if it was like a chemistry experiment, right? Or something. Right, right, right. Right. It's science, man. It's science telling me so. Therefore, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of stuff that's going on there. And that's not even mentioned the fact the replicability issue with psychological research that has come out in the last few years. So there's a lot of caveats there. If one wants to be skeptical uh, and therefore at the very least cautious about these things, I think one has plenty of reasons to do so. Uh, that said. Right. The reason I'm asking is because you do think that there is some use to this sort of knowledge. Right. So, which means you must think that it is possible to do empirical research. Right. With right. infants and primates and things. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe you can maybe explain how you might do that, um, right. given the sort of problem that I just mentioned, that a baby can't represent a state of affairs as unfair. And so how can you say he's reacting to unfairness, right? Yes. So, so one example is this. Uh, the, the, I, can give you, I can give you the example from uh, the, uh, using the concept and the reaction of uh, uh, that we label fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, uh, if you look at the way in which neuroscientists and psychologists talk about fear, broadly speaking, there is, a, there is an interesting book that came out about this recently, so we can add the link, uh, hopefully, uh, when the episode comes out. But uh, I didn't know this until recently, so I, I didn't realize it because I always assumed that when scientists in general talk about fear, they refer to the same thing. Turns out, no. Uh, turns out the neuroscientists tend to think of fear in a certain way and, and, and psychologists in a different way. And the, dif the difference between those two meanings is actually pertinent, I think, to, the, to what you're talking about, your worry um, about, you know, do the infants actually react because they have concepts or not. They, they very likely don't have a concept of you know, fairness. Um, but I think we can rescue the studies, uh, if well done, the studies on fairness, let's say, in infants, just in the same way, by making the same distinction between neuroscience and psychology about fear. The distinction is this. Um, a neuroscientist, when they think about fear, they think about the instinctive, preconceptual reaction that we have uh, when we're faced with something that could be potentially dangerous, okay? So it's, it's the adrenaline rush, it's the amygdala that, that causes the, the hormonal reaction, that's the fight or flight response, that kind of stuff, which is natural because that's, neuroscientists are interested in the sort of the basic structures of the brain, right. right? So what they mean by fear is that, and it is pretty clear that, yes, we all have fear because we know we should, in that sense, uh, we show the biological signs of it. We show the behavioral signs of it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When psychologists talk about fear, however, they talk more often than not about the concept of fear. That is, of the fact that you think about, as in, for instance, I am afraid that I'm not, I might not be able to retire if the economy goes down the drain. Right? That's a completely. I mean, I'm using the same word, but it's a very different sense of that word right that's a that's a conceptualized fear yeah. now it's true that there is a connection between the two of them uh, and psychological that connection is that a lot of the the, so the conceptualized fears do come initially from this instinctive thing this, this gut reaction oh my god what happens if right um and then you think about it you 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 integrate all the cultural information into it you reflect on it and so on and so forth and you develop the psychological sense of fear so I think that that model, the distinction between the neuroscience and the psychology of fear, 
uh, may be useful in thinking about what these people are doing when they're talking about moral behavior or about fairness in infants who clearly are preconceptual. They don't, they don't, they don't mean what Kant might have meant by moral or, 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 or morality or fairness. What they mean is something much more akin to the instinctive reaction of fear that we have when we're exposed to a danger. So it's now the usefulness of that. And here, since I haven't, I, I have not mentioned the S word, that is the Stoic word for this entire thing, except for the beginning when we talked about our, our book, I have to say that I think that the Stoics had a very good intuition about it. So one of the way they conceptualize um, adult moral behavior, adult, adult ethical behavior was by way of a developmental theory. Basically, they said, look, hmm. infants and, ch and young children, preconceptual, before the age of reason, they have certain instincts about how to behave. Those instincts tend to be mostly self-regarding. You know, they mostly care about what happens to them. And then um, initially, they uh, very quickly, they develop a, some kind of other regard, but only to the people that are their, take, uh, care, their care, uh, caretakers, right? So all parents or whoever happens to be around, siblings sometimes, right? And then what happens, said the Stoics? Okay, so this is the natural version of, you know, this is the natural stage. And then you enter the age of reason and you can conceptualize things. Now you can start thinking about, well, what does it mean? Why am I concerned about this? Why am I concerned, not concerned about these other things? What do other people think about uh, this sort of stuff? And that, according to them, is how you get eventually to a mature conception of ethics and what the balance between uh, self-regard and other, rega other regard uh, should be right. The reason I like that um, that theory, which is uh, sort of in some sense it anticipates modern development. I was going to say it's psychology. almost Kohlbergian, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the way, I mean, it's it's, uh, or, it's or Piaget, pretty uh, remarkable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason I like it is because it makes sense of something that otherwise, again, would be kind of mysterious. Why is it all of a sudden we become adults and we start thinking about? fairness and justice and other people and so on. Where the hell does that come from? You know, why, why do we do this? Well, we do it according to the Stoics and, and apparently according to recent developmental psychology because we, have a, we start with an instinct, with instinctual behaviors that shouldn't be taken to be moral in the, with the capital M sense of the, of the term. They should just be regarded as instincts from which eventually, once we enter the age of reason, we derive, we begin to derive things yeah. that yeah. And that does solve a major problem. In other words, it, it, it almost sounds too simple to be possibly th that this could be it, but maybe the only <laughs> problem is that these scientists are calling these things moral, right? And therefore giving a wild misimpression right. as to what, it is, what the reactions that they're eliciting and what they mean. What they're doing is, and I, and I almost wonder whether, I don't know how one fixes this because it seems to me that the way it's currently being done, I think, does more harm than good. It gives a misimpression, and it lends itself to just-so story-type evolutionary right. explanations, right? Sure. Um, sure. And I almost wish that scientists would go out and do a public campaign against this sort of thing, because it has tremendous influence these yeah. sorts of uh, these sorts of accounts. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I did propose some, something like you that. Tried. You tried, you <laughs> tried, and I was rebuffed. Um, but in the answer to your question about you know how how is it that we're going to fix this? Well, obviously, after people uh, look at these, you know, watch these episodes once, say, <laughs> right, right, right. they'll see the, the light, and everything will be fixed, right? <laughs> 
Well, I, yeah, well, I wish we, I wish I could say we had that level of reach, but maybe with your growing fame, that will, that will lift up all the boats around you. (laughs) (laughs) You are an optimist after all. (laughs) Well, Massimo, we are an hour and 15 minutes. I think uh, we did a good job. Um, You definitely really helped me out with this. This was stuff that has been bothering me now for a while. And um, I think you, you, you gave some really very clear um, are, I'm just. Are you hopeful about this, or do you think this is going to continue to be pretty um, sorted stuff? In other words, do you see people who are trying to sort of police this sort of thing, or do you just see this kind of the 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 the, the, the enthusiasm for pop science kind of allowing this to keep sort of dragging along this way, or do you think we're going to eventually have a more sophisticated evolution public evolutionary understanding about the relevance of evolutionary accounts look the the, the current uh, trend toward post truth and all that sort of stuff doesn't doesn't really make me very optimistic about a more nuanced understanding of science or of anything else for that matter so I wish I could be optimistic what I, what I can tell you is that I will keep doing the kind of things that we're doing today which is trying to explain to people right. what and uh, you know how I think uh, things actually work, uh, and and then uh, and then engaging dialogue with people who think that I'm incorrect, that my interpretation is incorrect, and hopefully, you know, according to John Stuart Mill, that's the way we make progress, right? The marketplace of ideas. Unfortunately, I think that in society at large, the marketplace of ideas has been flooded with a lot of crap. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, yeah. I'm not too optimistic, and yeah. not in the near future. Yeah, some other time I would like to talk, you know, I mean, look, there's two problems here. One problem is, of course, the popular culture. And with the you know the recent election we've had and everything, you know, there's a very clear worry that we're not at any time soon. The popular culture is not going to clean this up anytime soon. No. But I'm also worried about the academic culture, honestly. And sometime in the future, I'd maybe like like to talk to you about these replication crises in the social oh, si- yeah, in the social sure. sciences, sure. Um, because and what they mean and what needs to be done and all that sort of thing. Um, because that strikes me as a sort of a it received a moment's attention. Right. And then they quickly disappeared again. And yet we are basing enormously consequential decisions on what these social science tell us. Yes. Including decisions to deprive people of their liberty. I mean, we are locking people up on Correct. the basis of what social scientists are telling us. And the replication crisis scares me, really scares me. Yeah. Uh, given so, so I'd like to talk about that sometime in the future, maybe. Um, a good then, topic. Yeah. And until then... Um, Uh, We'll see you next time, uh, and we look forward to the uh, impending release of your book. Sounds good. Thank you. Massimo, take care. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page, at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.